welcome to today's episode of This Much We Know. I'm Murphy Hopkins Hubbard and I'm joined today by my co-host Simon Pickering. This Much We Know is a podcast all about building social enterprises. We hope to share with you the good, the bad, the ugly and all of our learnings and failures on developing impactful social enterprise providing employment and training for those in need. We will be sharing with you a range of challenges and how to overcome them. We're joined in each episode by a guest social entrepreneur sharing their stories, successes and most importantly their favourite facepalm moments. In today's episode we are lucky enough to be joined by Meg Doherty, founder of Fat Macy's, Year Here Fellow and Homeless Link member. Let's hear what she had to say. I actually didn't have any relevant background or experience before setting up Fat Macy's. I had started a programme called Year Here, which is a sort of postgraduate course in social innovation. And as part of their way of working, what they do is throw you in at the deep end by putting you on a five-month frontline placement. And the idea is really, what's the best way of really understanding a social problem and for them it to live it and learn it and experience it by being there rather than, I suppose, just sitting and reading about it? And so mine was at the YMCA in North London. So that's an 150-bed homeless hostel in Crouch End. And I was there for a five-month placement where I was sort of a kind of support worker, general help, I suppose, volunteer, and went in five days a week just to sort of be there and help out. But I think in doing so, I just spent a lot of time speaking to people and learning about their stories and, and how they ended up in the hostel. And so for me, I suppose, having known nothing about homelessness before, I just kept being really surprised by what I'd hear or the stories that people would tell me or um, the situations that led to people ending up in the hostel. And I think the one that kept coming up time and time again was this sense that people were in a hostel and that was great because it meant they weren't on the streets or they weren't sleeping in their car or they weren't sort of stuck at someone's house or whatever it was but that it was so hard for people to then move out of the hostels. And that's something I'd never really understood was how difficult those transitions are for people. People would keep telling me about the benefit system and how you had to stay on benefits in order to afford the hostels. And therefore, it was you couldn't work more than 16 hours a week because they needed to get full benefit allowance. And therefore, you couldn't save any money. So you could never get a housing deposit. And you just sort of thought, this makes no sense. Like, I didn't understand how that could be the system. And so I suppose it was that sort of that little nugget was the thing that I kept coming back to of like, how can we do something to make that better? Because that just didn't make sense to me. And so I suppose a combination of that and then the like love of cooking that came out of the hostel. So that hostel in particular had no kitchen that you could sort of, you couldn't cook day to day. There was a canteen, so all your meals were catered for. And so the only way people could cook was if someone ran a session in the sort of training kitchen upstairs. For me, cooking was always like, oh, God, you got home at the end of a long day and you couldn't quite be bothered. So you'd like make beans on toast or whatever it was. But for people, because they couldn't cook, it was such a luxury to be able to like choose what you were going to cook, find your ingredients and then make a meal as per your recipe. So people just loved cooking and, and the food that was coming out of the kitchen was just amazing. And I thought that sort of the pairing, it was like, how can we use that real interest in, and love of food with this real like problem? And is there a way of combining the two to create a bit of a solution? So that's where it all began, I suppose. This is great. Well, we're talking about food. So that's really, yeah, I'm, I'm Always good. straight away. <laughs> I'm there. I think you're right. And I think within the sort of homeless sector in particular, cooking is really powerful for getting people together and creating that sense of belonging and and being part of something. Yeah, exactly. And that sense of sharing food, you know, there's something that 
you really break down barriers when you're all like sharing a meal together that someone's cooked and it's a bit of an equalizer I think you lose those dynamics and everyone's just sitting down and having food which has been really special so in terms of that Macy's moving forward then so you identified the benefit system and that ability for people to cook and excite people and get people engaged in something how did you then transfer that into the Fat Macy's model of operating? How does it work, what you do now? The early version was very naive. I remember looking back over a funding bid I wrote in the early days and just thinking, you didn't have a clue, that's never going to work. But the original idea was, could we run supper clubs that are mainly staffed by people in the hostel and then instead of paying anyone, the profits go into a charity fund that builds over time. The idea is that people are using the food as a learning experience and and running events, which is obviously a really great work experience, that the profits sit in this fund that will build over time so that at the end of the program, they can apply for a housing deposit. I suppose the premise has stayed the same, but the the sort of operations and the model has changed quite a lot. So now we're more of a catering company, or we were pre-pandemic. We're sort of a a weird quasi-catering hamper factory at the moment. But what we do is we get bookings in for catering or hampers or whatever it might be in our business. We have a professional chef team, but there are always spots available for people doing work experience who we've trained up from hostels. And then the profits go into this charity fund. And and so what we ask people to do is a 200-hour work experience placement, which we think is a good enough amount of time so that people can really see progress. So, you know, you're you're getting used to arriving on time. You're getting used to working an eight-hour shift, working in a team, all those sort of soft skills that people really need in the workplace. But then as they complete the program, so at certain milestones at 50 hours, 100 and 150 We have these sort of structured check-in sessions alongside the opportunity to apply for a small grant to cover an item that people need. So a lot of people need ID. So we cover things like passports or driving license or birth certificates, all those things that are really holding people back. Because if you don't have that, you obviously can't open a bank account, then you can't get a job and all those sorts of things. And then at the end of the program, once they've completed a 200-hour work experience program, they've had a lot of support from our support team in various areas, and they can then apply for the housing deposit. And so the whole idea is that we're looking at the whole sort of journey. You know, it's not just the housing deposit, and it's not just the work experience, and it's not just the support. You sort of need all of it working together and coming to a point at the same time and have the best possible chance, I suppose, of making a transition into your own home and then sustaining it. Because I think if you don't have those three things in balance, it's harder, I suppose. How does it work? People complete the training, they do their 200 hours, and then do they move off into paid employment with what they learn from you? What's that? Yeah, exactly. Yes. We have a group of partner employers that we try to refer people to. So there's another charity set up a few years ago called Only a Pavement Away, and they are trying to plug the employment gap that they've been facing in hospitality due to Brexit with people living in homeless shelters, temporary accommodation, I think ex-offenders. And so they have a jobs board um, of sort of jobs in hospitality across the UK, and we can match our participants to that. That's great for people that want to work in hospitality. A bit harder for us when we have people that have a law degree and want to go and work in, you know, a very specialised field that we don't know a huge amount about, but we support as much as possible with that whole process so people can get into employment. But yeah, it's really important for us that at the point where they finish the programme, someone is able to prove they can sustain their rent payments after that first one that we would cover. And so there's a bit of a balancing act of making sure they're in sustainable employment. They've understood the budgets. They understand the costs associated with moving out. 
and we all feel secure or we feel certain that they've got a really good chance of sustaining the tenancy beyond that first month. Thanks Meg. It's great to hear you're looking at that 360 support as well as working with other organisations in the sector as well. I think one thing that we've learned from this podcast is the real value of peer network and working together. Really exciting. You mentioned when you're writing your first funding bid and going you know what what was I thinking? When you first started out on a scale of one to ten how confident were you starting compared to where you are now that's a really good question I don't think anyone's ever asked me that I would say confidence was low (laughs) I'd say like a three or four you know I'm not a chef it felt like a real gamble and I think that first event that we did we did a supper club in a basement just off Brick Lane in a cafe and it was all friends and family and it was very much like this is an idea <laughs> please come but like I'm really sorry if it doesn't work you know it was one of those and I think very much the idea was it could all be an absolute mess and then we'll get takeaway pizza and we'll all laugh about it as this ridiculous thing that I tried and didn't work I suppose I had the support of year here which was really invaluable in terms of helping me figure out the business model and and, and the social enterprise and the workings of that I think without that, it would have been really difficult because I suppose to your point about networks, it's that same thing. You've got a huge network of people that are there really willing you on and and wanting you to to do it and for it to be a success. So I suppose that kind of combats the naysayers who just think, why would you do it? You know, it's such a gamble, it's such a risk. You don't have the relevant experience. Like, why would you go down that route? But I think for me, that first event, like the fact that it happened, and I'm sure the food was actually terrible, but everyone told us it was great. But the fact that we could do it and it happened and everyone left happy, I thought, okay, it can work. And so from then on, it was just a case of getting in the people that have the expertise to really make it a success. So much more confident later than I was going into that first one. Just so good to hear the sort of story. And, and I love the fact you tried it out on friends and family on the <laughs> understanding that this, if this is a failure, never mention it again. I just will never talk about it. Yeah. Um, I guess my next question is then moving on from that, what was the moment for you then when you were like, oh, actually this works and my friends and family are no longer saying, are you, have you lost your mind? They're saying you need to make this happen. Was there a, a turning point where you thought, yeah, this is, this is the one we're, we're on? Yeah, I suppose that first event, I think seeing, it sounds really cheesy, but seeing the faces of the people who I'd asked to come along from the hostel and like, it was very much like, this is an idea, bear with, it could go really wrong, but are you willing to try it? And then sort of seeing their faces on that first day when we'd got to the end of like a three course meal for 20 people, you know, that sense of sort of achievement and success when you like, you know, you've done it, it's happened and everyone looks relieved but also really pleased I think for me that was a real moment of okay there's something in it I suppose the point at which we really felt like it could be a thing beyond just sort of a series of supper clubs was maybe when we got um, Emmanuel his housing deposit he's the first person who got a deposit but sort of went through the program the way it is kind of now designed rather than there were sort of two others before who'd gone through a very pilot version that didn't really make sense at the time. I suppose it was really good timing that he finished his 200 hours at the day that BBC Three had come down to do a bit of filming about the programme. You know those days where just the energy is completely different because I think everyone was a little bit performing to camera because they were in there trying to get a good three-minute thing about Fat Macy's. Um, And then also Emmanuel, I think he just finished, so did a big announcement about how he'd just finished and he'd got the keys to his flat 
And I think just that whole day for me was really one of those moments where you think actually all we've got to do is figure out how to make this happen more. You know, it works. We've done it. He's got keys. And we've just got to like iron out the issues so that we can be doing this every month. If we can figure this out and we can create that pathway for someone to go down as long as they're there and we're there, it can keep happening. Until that point, you're always a bit unsure whether you're just sort of making it up and hoping for the best. But I suppose knowing all those things had slotted into place at the same time was one of those moments. Oh, that's amazing. Can we see the footage from BBC Three anywhere? Yeah, you can. I think it's on YouTube. We've put it all over our Twitter and Instagram, so I'm sure it's on there somewhere. Right, well, we'll send it around on the link to this podcast, maybe, for those nosy people like me. Going back to the network again, as what I love to talk about the most, was there any particular conversations you've had with maybe Year Here Fellows or anyone else in the sector, people from YMCA perhaps, that you felt were really pivotal in growing or changing it as it's sort of moved along within your journey? We're very much following the, the idea of like, if it doesn't work for the people we're trying to create it for, then it doesn't work. So we get quite regular feedback from our trainees on how to improve things that they didn't like, things that they think should be better, ideas they've got for how we could extend it and take over the world and you name it, they've got suggestions. So that's been really helpful, actually. And I think the having the sort of grants throughout the program to cover those smaller items has come from trainees who've said, well, this is the issue, actually. You know, it's all very well to get to the end of the program and get a housing deposit. But what's the point of me having a housing deposit if I don't have ID? Because then I don't have a bank account and then I don't have a job and then no one's going to give me a flat because if I don't have a job, why would you take me on as a tenant? So I think a lot of those things have really come from them and have improved the program so much because it's real feedback and it's really affecting people's lives and who better to get the feedback from than them. They've been really, really helpful. Sometimes not at the times you want it. You know, you get quite direct feedback in the middle of an event about what's not working, but always good, always good to get the feedback and then go back to it later. What's been your biggest facepalm moment? God, there have been so many. I think for me, there's a, there's a moment that really sticks out, which was um, sitting at Old Street with an oven at about two in the morning, trying to get an Uber to take me and this oven back to my flat because we'd had to buy the oven to do an event that we'd agreed to do. And then the venue had no oven and we'd planned to do pies or, you know, it was one of those real, like, why did no one ask any of those questions before that moment? And I think I had a moment sitting at 2am, it was December, it was probably raining, thinking, what am I doing? Like, what, what is all of this about? And knowing that loads of my friends were sitting in bed, uh, having done a normal day's work and like, you know, it was all a bit more normal, trying to figure out what I was doing and why at that point was, um, I think, a bit of a life facepalm moment more than maybe just a fat Maisie's facepalm moment but I think though you've got to have those moments don't you because if you don't none of it will ever get better and I think from then on it was really learning that we need the professionals in the kitchen and we need chefs and we need kitchens and all those things I think not long after that we then crowdfunded to try and get a venue so that we could just exist in one place and stop transporting equipment across London I've got a follow-up question. Where's the oven now? Have you smashed it into pieces? Or? Oh, God. The oven then sat in a storage unit for about three and a half years, not being used. I think it's still only been used for that one event. 
because it's not the right kind of oven if you do it. You know, I just didn't know what I was doing. So I just bought an oven and, and that was that. It's now been moved into our new venue, which is great, but apparently it's still the wrong oven. So it's just sitting in the middle of the room and we're trying to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> Fantastic. I think we might all just start doing a competition of who's got the best face palm moment at the end of this. And perhaps the winner can can get the oven. <laughs> yeah, the oven. I will give that oven to anyone that wants it. I've tried to give it away so many times. <laughs> I would have had it on eBay months ago. Probably. Yeah, maybe before. that's it. Maybe I just need to do that. Brilliant. What's in the future? Where do you see Fat Macy's going next? You mentioned lots of changes along the way and adaptations to how it's been. Lots of regular feedback to get you on your toes. What should we expect from Fat Macy's? Any future collaboration projects? Yeah, so we're currently setting up our first deli restaurant, which is, I think, probably two and a half years after I first said that we were setting up our deli restaurant but it is actually happening we have the keys it's really exciting actually to finally be in that position after so long of thinking about how to get there so we have secured a cafe spot it's it's a meanwhile space as part of a regeneration project at Westminster Council so it's on Ebury Bridge Road Pimlico Victoria area we were supposed to open in Christmas but Christmas kept being ages away and then suddenly it was we were in December and we were nowhere near opening and so we'll be opening hopefully the sort of second week of January well lockdown dependent as a deli restaurant and to try and move some of our catering operations from there it's that first move from slightly pop-up business model to a, a much more permanent setup and so we open six days a week and what's great about that is it means we can offer a slot every day for a trainee and so it just quadruples the social impact that we think we'll be able to have in the coming year which is just incredible. And I think just such a relief to finally get to this spot where everything's in one place or nearly in one place and we can start operating a bit more like any business would. And I think that's really exciting. So with the model that you've got at the moment with the saving for the housing deposits, will that model remain? Are you looking for any changes yet? Yeah, so the idea is that will stay the same and we'll just be able to expand it. We had quite a labour-intensive way of recruiting and that's what we're looking at changing because I think whereas it's taken quite a while for trainees to complete the programme, we now think people should do it in about six months if you do sort of a regular Tuesday slot or something like that. And so we're looking at opening recruitment and working with more hostels or or more social enterprises to pass people on to us who they think are good for our programme. That'll be the biggest change, really, is we've worked very intensely with a small group of people for the last five years. And now we'll have a bit more of that churn, I think, which is really positive, but I suppose quite scary. Growing is always a bit scary, but I think it's the right time to do it. It sounds a little bit like you started out in this journey almost by mistake. Is that fair to say? Very fair to say, yeah. (laughs) And so... Are there times where you think, do you know what, I wish I wish I hadn't done social enterprise or are you, is it you, you know, like are you so socially motivated that actually if you weren't doing this, it would be something else? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think I fully ended up here by accident. Had year here put me in a different placement, we'd all be in a completely different place. I suppose I never set out with this sort of grand vision. And I think you meet a lot of people in the social enterprise world that have either experienced something or had something happen to them that's led to this real passion for that specific issue. I always find that really interesting because it's you, you sort of have this whole world of people that come at social enterprise with a very different background, I suppose. I think I was always looking for something. 
I was one of those classic, like, I want to do good, but I don't know what that means or what that looks like. Never really found something that I enjoyed or that I felt like ticked all the boxes for me. And I think what's so nice about social enterprises, you're super busy, but in a really good way. In a day, you're doing eight different things. So you're going from like the marketing strategy to sales, to doing a podcast, to figuring out what to do with that oven that's still sitting in the middle of your cafe. You're really thinking on your toes. And I think that for me is what I really need in a day. You can see the change happening. You know, every day that we go into Fat Macy's, there are trainees coming in who are at some point of their journey. And and they're not only a delight to be around because they're just like so fun and and bring such an energy that I think you don't have that like, oh, God, I'm back at work. It's a Monday morning kind of vibe going on. There's a a real difference, I think, in, in our team setup. That just keeps you going in a different way, I think, which just makes it all feel worth doing because you're watching people figure out where they want to go and what they want to do and answer some of those big questions. And we're, I suppose, just there to help them answer some of those questions. And then you get days like, so today, one of our trainees will finish probably by 11 o'clock. We're all eyes on the clock. He's got like two hours to do this morning and then he's finished his program. And, And you just think... Like, what's that? On a Tuesday in December, you just get someone suddenly eligible for a housing deposit and they can then plan their whole new life from January. That's amazing. You don't get that very often, I think, in a job. And I think it then makes other jobs feel a little bit like, well, why would I go and just run events when you could run social enterprise events when there are those differences being made, I suppose? I think that for me is what I need in my sort of day. I need that kind of sense of change or difference. One of the themes of this podcast that's come out, actually, is we've had so many different people on and you just get a sense of like, yeah, there's a social entrepreneur here. We're dealing with somebody who really is in tune with what social enterprise is about. And I've got that from you this morning, definitely. Meg, if you were to meet someone now who is in a position as you were when you were starting a year here, you know, looking to do something good, not quite sure what to do or where to start, what would your sort of words of wisdom be? The main thing that I think is really important is knowing that you can just try. You know, you can't be too scared for it to all go wrong because, I mean, Fat Macy's could still all go wrong. There's no guarantee that things don't go wrong. But I suppose you've just got to sit happily with that and know that you can just try and see what happens. So I think that's something that really came out of year here was you did 10 months with a group of people and you were all just trying things and some worked and some didn't. And that's fine. So I think that's really important. And then I think the other thing is you've just got to go for it. There is so much support out there and there's so many people really willing on these sorts of social enterprises. It's just really important to give it a go and find that support and get in the expertise or the funding or whatever it might be to make something a success. Had I sat there and thought through all the things that were going to go wrong, you'd just never do it. So I think there's something about just giving it a go and then I suppose being comfortable with the fact that it might not work but you have a good chance of succeeding. I think that's really important. And I suppose the other bit is just how quickly you can look legit as a social enterprise. Like I remember we came up with a name and we came up with a logo and then we sort of just set up a Twitter page and an Instagram page and almost suddenly you're then legit. (laughs) You then count. Um, And people start sort of interacting with you as if you know what you're doing. And in those early days that we really didn't, but you've just sort of, I suppose, got to go down that route and, and, and see what happens. And then I suppose you figure it out as you go. I, I'm not one for like sitting and planning for like 
six months. I think I've got a lot of friends that are in that kind of camp where they'll design the perfect thing and then they'll go and test it. Whereas I sort of have to just go for it and then I'll learn so much more by something going wrong or by sitting at Old Street with the oven than I would if I sat and planned the Fat Macy's strategy for the next four years. We're sort of there now, you know, five years later, but we'd never have learned what we learned now had we just tried to sort of figure it out at the beginning. There's a lot of learning by doing. Part of this podcast is really sharing the idea about learning through mistakes and encouraging people in the sector, such entrepreneurs, charity specialists, anyone looking to work in ending homelessness to share how much they've learned through mistakes so we can follow suit. And also remember, making a mistake isn't doing something wrong. It's how we learn. And we should celebrate that because it's moving on to the next step. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important. We got told very early on by someone to do, you know, like a failure section in your impact report every year, because almost people will learn so much more. You can throw out all your glossy (laughs) figures and your photos, but someone will learn so much more by the things that went wrong, because that's how we've learned. And it's always so much more interesting, isn't it? And this was all amazing and everything went to plan because I don't believe anyone that says that. I think the trick is to fail fast, isn't it? Which some people are like in the sector raise an eyebrow, like fail, not fast. No, we can't, mm. can't do that. But actually it's better to fail fast and do something else and, and move into something different than it is to be so fixed on an idea that you're going to, you know, whatever happens, we're going to deliver this, whether it works or not, we're going to do it. And uh, yeah, it doesn't work, does it? It's better to fail fast and, and reshape, move on, learn from it and have a go at something different is my personal feeling on it so Meg you mentioned Emmanuel earlier on in the podcast a sort of casing point of like this is going to work has there been anyone else who comes to mind that if all of this were to end Fat Macy's was to disappear tomorrow which I absolutely hope it won't but if it were is there anyone that springs to mind you'd say it was worth it because that person in the vein of failing fast there's someone that always comes to mind who we didn't support well whose life was too complex for what we were trying to do there were just so many more issues than I think any of us when we set out working with him sort of understood or maybe even he understood either I suppose I think that people like that that always come to mind because they're not success stories and it wasn't a lovely journey and a photo op and a great video that we could make and it is not a great story I suppose But I think for people like that, having them involved has made us learn what we need to do better for the next group of people. And so I think they're the people I sort of think about almost more often than the people that have gone through and and got their deposits and gone on to a sort of brighter future because they really stick with you and you sort of think, actually, we need to be better and we need to keep existing so that we can better support those people in the future when they crop up. I mean, here's hoping. So we often get people come back to us a year and a half after we've last heard from them. So there's always a little glimmer of hope that some of those people will come back and we can sort of try again. But I think they're the people that really stick in your mind as the ones that you want to do better for. As long as you know you're not causing harm, it's okay. You know, as long as what you're doing isn't, creating a framework that exacerbates the situation there will always be those people whatever you do so you've got to be comfortable with that I suppose it's been so great having you on Meg it's so nice to hear your story I've heard your story sort of a few times at different intervals and the key bits that you're sharing seem to change each time which is so nice for me <laughs> but like I'm getting a fuller and fuller picture of your experience and the personal journey that it is as well you know for a lot of people setting up it can be lonely and isolating and face palming on your own. (laughs) It's not always that fun. So yeah, it's great to hear and to celebrate the successes that you've had. 
and yeah, inspiring other people on the way. One final little question for me, just as a sneaky one. Is there any other social enterprises at the moment within the homelessness sector that you've seen that you're really excited about? There's a new social enterprise called Pivot that set up, I think a year ago, I think they were turning one in February, set up by a friend of mine called Alice. They are making jewellery with young people living in homeless hostels um, and using the profits to cover sort of service charge and, and things like that for people, but also helping them gain new skills and a skill that is really transferable, you know, like making a product and sticking to deadlines and, and they're just beautiful things as well. So do check them out. I think they've got the balance really right of creating a product that people actually want that also has sort of social value. And I think that's the way the, the sector's really moving. You've got to create a product that is wanted by people and, and is, you know, not just a naff, yeah, I'll buy it because it's doing good sort of idea. So I think they'll do big things. They've only been around for a year and I already see them everywhere, which is always a good sign. Yeah, brilliant. I do know Pivot. They're um, fab. Yeah, do check them out. We'll share the link as well with this podcast. So if anyone wants to buy some jewellery, um, go there, as we will do with Fat Macy's too. Meg, if people want to find you on social media, the website, can you share your handle for us? Yeah, of course. So we're at Fat Macy's, I think, on Twitter. We're at Fat underscore Macy's on Instagram, which is very annoying and we should change it because they should definitely be the same thing. Um, and we're at fatmacy's.org is our website. Thanks to Meg for joining us today on This Much We Know. Our next episode will be joined by Julius Ibrahim, social entrepreneur and founder of Second Shot Coffee. So please subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter at thismuch underscore we know. Thanks to Neil Whiteside at Freedom One for production. Until next time, from Murphy and me, thank you for listening and goodbye.